Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Worth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Alrighty, guys, welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. This week, I am here with Anais Remeli. How are you doing today, Anais? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yes, so excited to have you. Um, Anais is a part of Whale Scientists, which we had her partner on um, probably, I don't know, about like 10 episodes ago. Um, and we're here to talk about her paper um, the validation of quantitative fatty acid signature analysis for estimates of the, or for estimating the diet composition of free ranging killer whales. So long, long title, talk, isn't it? Yes, long <laughs> title, a mouthful. Um, but tell us about yourself. How did you get into this field? Where are you from? What are your hobbies? All right. Uh, so my name is Anais, as you said, I am 28 years old. Uh, I was born and raised in French actually come from the French Alps in a little town called Avion. And if you drink Avion water, uh, you can maybe <laughs> associate it with it. Uh, that's where I was born. And I was always fascinated by the sea, but I grew up in the mountains uh, with no access to the ocean. So I always thought uh, whales were so cool and amazing and so mysterious because they were so far. Um, and then I always 
like I had all these books and obviously I had Google and I started to like Google everything I could about uh, whales and killer whales, etc. And I got uh, really into marine mammalogy. And uh, so after I started my university, I uh, tried everything I could to get as close as marine biology, as close to marine biology as I could, um, because I did not have a marine biology um, major in my French university. Uh, it was just biodiversity. So that's kind of, kind of what I did. Uh, and then I did internships in Italy uh, to study whales and dolphins. Uh, so I was kind of like, a, I was doing like a marine mammal observer uh, job. So kind of like helping on whale watching vessels and uh, ferries and the research boat, trying to collect information on cetaceans in the Mediterranean Sea. And then I did an Erasmus master uh, in, in Europe. So that's kind of like, it's a crazy master program. It's not really well known, uh, but it's a master program where you change universities and countries every semester. So oh, cool. it's super awesome because you get to uh, explore all of Europe and you get to meet so many people from every different country, every background, uh, which was great. And I made a lot of friends there and it was just an amazing uh, master program. And for my master thesis, so in, in Europe, uh, things work a little differently for masters. Uh, it's not uh, just taught classes or um, research. It's kind of a mix of both. So we have uh, three semesters of classes and then one semester to cram in a master thesis and uh, get the most out of a research experience. So that's kind of what I did. And I researched uh, the feeding ecology and contaminant exposures in um, humpback whales from Antarctica, which was pretty amazing. And I did that in Belgium. Uh, and then after I finished my master thesis, I got in touch with my current PhD advisor at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. And she offered me uh, kind of the PhD of my dreams uh, to work on contaminants and feeding ecology in North Atlantic killer whales. Uh, and so I immediately said yes and jumped on a flight to uh, move my whole life to Canada. That's amazing. Um, so where is the North Atlantic population? What's their home range? And then, you know, what's their ecotype as well? So we have different populations and actually we don't really talk about populations because there's still genetic analyses underway. Uh, we talk about regional groups because at some point people thought that there might be some mixing in the different populations and then uh, they actually found out that uh, the Norwegian and Icelandic populations, for example, they don't really mix. They haven't for a long time. Uh, but then you get some Icelandic um, killer whales that tend to go to Scotland. So those are kind of like, so we talk about regional groups, mm -hmm. uh, which is an easier way to distinguish uh, them. Then in terms of ecotypes, um, the original papers talked about two ecotypes, uh, one generalist, so that includes the killer whales that feed on fish predominantly with a little bit of uh, marine mammals, mm -hmm. and then a specialist, marine mammal specialist ecotype, which includes some of the Canadian and Greenlandic killer whales, and those tend to feed on marine mammals exclusively. Um, what we're finding more and more is that this two ecotype classification is kind of uh, outdated and mm -hmm. more and more we're finding uh, different degrees of individual specialization within different regional groups. 
And so uh, I think this two ecotype classification uh, is going to have to go at some point. For sure. Um, that's always like so interesting to hear about. Like whenever passengers ask like certain questions, like how long do whales live or things like that, I'm always telling them like, you know, that we learn new things all the time and we could be saying things. And like the one thing that I've learned from whales that I feel like we, there's so much we don't know. They teach us new things all the time. That's really cool. Um, so tell us about your paper. So that, that title is a mouthful. So (laughs) terms for those of us who maybe aren't so scientifically minded. Yeah, it is a long paper and it actually, it's the name of that, this model, uh, we call it QFASA for short, uh, but it is quantitative fatty acid signature analysis, which honestly, the first time I read it, I was like, excuse me, what? (laughs) Um, And it's basically, uh, so this paper is a new method that uh, we developed for killer whales to estimate their diet. Uh, So it relies on a very simple principle. Um, Killer whales and other predators uh, feed on other animals and um, they will eat the the fat and accumulate fatty acids. And some of these fatty acids then go into uh, storage uh, and can be used later for energy. So Mm. these animals will store a bunch of uh, fatty acids in their fat. Um, And so we can look at the composition of this fat. Uh, So in in case of killer whales, it is a blubber. And since some of these fatty acids that they consume go directly into um, their fat storage, we can try to estimate what they ate based on the composition of their blubber. So it's kind of where we started off. Yeah. Uh, and so a couple of years ago, some of our colleagues developed this model, uh, this modeling approach called QFASA for short. And um, it, to, to be able to calculate uh, the percentage of different species uh, that is the most likely to have been consumed to account for the composition of the lipids in the blubber, um, you need a couple of uh, important pieces uh, p- pieces, yeah, in your, in your model. So you need uh, fatty acid compositions from the predator. Uh, you need fatty acid compositions from the potential prey species that the predator ate. Uh, so that could be like fish, seal, uh, baleen whales, mm-hmm. uh, other cetaceans like harbor porpoises, etc. And then you need a model to kind of calculate the whole thing. Uh, and you need a very important um, piece in your puzzle, which is called calibration coefficients. And those are little numbers that account for the transformation of the fatty acids from the prey to the predator, because the predator that consumes the prey will ingest most of the fatty acids inside the prey. But there is a certain degree of modification that happens in, like, as a result of like the predator's metabolism of the fatty acids. So it's not like a one-on-one um, ratio. And so we were missing this essential piece of the puzzle inside the model uh, to be able to uh, recreate their diet, estimate their diets. And so to do that, we actually had access to uh, samples of killer whales that died at SeaWorld. So it's kind of of a stat 
part because the killer whales died at SeaWorld. But then when they did the autopsy, uh, in that case, the necropsy, they saved a little piece of blubber for future research. Mm-hmm. And we were lucky enough to have access to this blubber. And we also had access to the fish that they fed the killer whales for multiple years. And so we were able to calculate these little numbers, which account for the transformation of each little fatty acid from the fish to the killer whale. And so we were able to calculate the metabolism of the different fatty acids uh, within the killer whales. And so that was the important part that was missing from the model. And we calculated that. And then we actually tested the model of like thousands of times to make sure that it can actually recreate the diet of the captive killer whales that we, we knew their diet because that's what they were fed for multiple years. And so once we were able to do that, and that took me like six months of crying behind my computer because it was so hard to do. <laughs> um, once we did that, we were able to try it on wild killer whales. Mm-hmm. And so we could uh, try it on Greenlandic killer whales. And we were able to find that these killer whales, according to the model, ate uh, seals mostly. So they were harp and hooded seals. And again, sad story because these killer whales died in the process of being uh, harvested, but they were harvested by indigenous communities who uh, do subsistence harvesting and rely on these killer whales to survive. Um, They also looked at the stomach contents of the killer whales. And uh, in most cases, they found harp and hooded seals in their stomachs. So for us, that was really, really exciting because we were able to prove that this method works. And we had, I think, uh, 535 uh, different prey items Mm -hmm. uh, for which we had fatty acids in the model. So it was a huge Mm -hmm. number. Uh, And we were able to find that they ate harp and hooded seals, which is what the indigenous communities found in their stomachs. So that was really exciting for us and that showed that potentially this model can be applied uh, to other populations, maybe in the North Atlantic, maybe somewhere else. Uh, And as a little spoiler alert, I am currently writing my paper on this method applied to 200 different uh, individuals in the North Atlantic. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm super excited. I can't say too much yet, but I will be presenting these results at the Society for Marine Mammalogy Conference in Florida in August. Uh, And tiny spoiler, the method works and we find some crazy cool results across the North Atlantic. Oh my gosh. Well, we're going to have to have you back on so that we can hear about (laughs) it. Um, I should, I feel like I should probably go to that conference in Florida um, and maybe go to yeah, I mean, it, the conferences are not like in the United States often, so it would be kind of silly if I didn't. I will definitely look into that because I, you know, there's a lot of people there that I'm sure um, I'd want to hear from as well. That's awesome. Um, and more people can look into that. I'll be sure to leave like a little link down there. Uh, but mm-hmm. you touched on um, working with indigenous groups. Um, so what role have like indigenous groups personally played in the science that you do? Because you know, I think that uh, in most places that is, you know, they serve as like the core, like basis of knowledge being the ones that have been there for so long. Absolutely. And I think, um, I think in Canada, especially, uh, we're making such an effort to include 
traditional knowledge in research. And I think it's a step in the right direction and it should be emphasized even more uh, because indigenous communities hold the knowledge of the Arctic. Uh, they've been there for multiple generations. Um, their leaders have literal, literal knowledge of everything. They're amazing. And um, in my research personally, uh, I haven't been able to interact with them directly because it's been through my colleagues, uh, but they have played a tremendous role because every time, um, like they have such a strong relationship that every time they find um, a, a new catch uh, with new marine mammals, they contact uh, the colleagues and they make sure to collect the samples uh, for research. And then our colleagues make sure to like explain the results of uh, the studies back to the indigenous communities. And so you create this like long-term relationship that's been going on for years and years. And it's kind of the best case scenario. That's what you want to be doing. And you want to make sure that there's uh, feedback going on in both directions and that you can use each other's knowledge to um, like build up on uh, research and science in general. Absolutely. No, that's, that's very important. Um, have you found that with your colleagues that those relationships are a little bit harder to build or do you have any tips for how people can go about, you know, cultivating these relationships in a way that's respectful? That's a really good question. I am sadly not involved enough in this aspect, uh, but I do know that, especially for some of my Canadian colleagues, uh, those are relationships that probably took a really long time uh, to develop and that need to be maintained every year. And you need to make sure that um, the relationship goes both way and each party can get um, as much information um, advantages from each other as they can. Absolutely. Um, so going back to the paper itself, um, I know that you got like blubber samples from animals from SeaWorld and then from these indigenous communities. Are there yes. other ways that you guys get blubber samples or is it typically just from whales that are dead? Well, that's a super good question. Um, so in this case, we got uh, full blubber samples because we wanted to be able to test um, the model on different layers of the blubber. So the blubber is a highly stratified tissue in marine mammals uh, because it, they need to keep warm. So it has at different levels of the blubber, different properties. And so as a result, the fatty acid composition in the blubber changes a lot. And uh, we did previous research on uh, the fatty acid composition throughout the blubber. And what we found is that there are mainly two different layers, the inner blubber that has a fatty acid composition on its own, and then the outer blubber, which is closer to the skin and has a different fatty acid composition. Uh, so we wanted to be able to test this modeling approach on different layers to make sure that it works for inner layers, outer layers, and full blubber, but mostly for the outer layer, because this is what we usually sample at sea. And we obviously don't want to do lethal sampling because that goes against uh, conservation uh, ideals. Obviously, we don't want to um, kill the killer whales. Uh, we want to save them. So uh, we wanted to be able to apply this method to blubber biopsies. And so uh, when we calculated those little missing pieces, the calibration coefficients, 
uh, we calculated them for each layer of the blubber. So that was actually quite difficult because we had to cut uh, a little piece of blubber into 10 equal layers uh, from the muscle to the skin, which was incredibly hard to do. Oh yeah. And then we calculated these little numbers for each fatty acid, for each layer of the blubber, for each killer whale. And each of these little numbers took 4,000 iterations to like calculate. So that was like, that was a lot of work. <laughs> and uh, we were able to prove that the model works on the inner blubber if you use the, cal uh, the little calibration coefficients that you calculated for the inner blubber. And it works for the outer blubber if you, again, use those little calibration coefficients from the outer blubber. So we were able to prove that you can use this approach using just biopsies. So to collect them, you um, shoot a dart that has a little modified tip that's gonna collect kind of like a skin core uh, yeah. on the whale. And so that will steal a little piece of skin and blubber. And that kind of looks like the very tip of your pinky uh, okay. in terms of size. And so that's what we use. And that's uh, what we used in the next paper that I'm currently writing. Awesome. Um, and so did you go out and collect the data on the 200 animals or, um, did you have like a research team or had somebody already gotten the blubber from them and you just tested it? Uh, so I haven't gone yet, but I'm going to Iceland, uh, in I think three weeks, three to four weeks. So I'm really excited. I'm going to be working with, uh, my colleague, Filipa Samara, um, from the Icelandic Orca project. So I'm very, very excited. I was supposed to go earlier, but obviously the pandemic happened. So I got stuck in uh, Quebec, but, um, this, whole sampling uh, pool of about 200 individuals is a huge international collaboration. Uh, and we're very, very proud to be part of this huge international effort. Uh, so we have our colleagues in Norway who um, sampled their killer whales. And then we have our colleagues from DFO Canada who sampled killer whales in the Arctic. Then we have colleagues who sampled killer whales in St. Pierre Miquelon of um, Canada, but like closer to Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. Uh, then we have people collect uh, samples in Iceland and we have people collect samples in Greenland and the Faroe Islands. So we have like, we cover a whole, uh, the whole North Atlantic basically. Um, and so that was great because it was amazing to be able to collaborate with so many people and they're so knowledgeable, each of them on their own regional groups. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to get so much insight from them, uh, from the field. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, how are the North Atlantic populations doing? Cause this podcast obviously was started about the Southern residents cause they're not doing so well. How do the northern or the northern Atlantic populations compare? Uh, I think that they're doing much better than the southern residents. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, for some of them, well, most of them, and that's kind of why we did this study. Most of them are so out of sight; they're so uh, isolated and far from any human life that we don't really know how they're doing. And this is kind of the purpose of our study. We're trying to understand what they eat. And then uh, the next step in my PhD is uh, measuring in the same individual, same samples, uh, the contaminants. And, uh, so everything that we put into the environment as human beings, so flame retardants, pesticides, et cetera, 
try to see if they accumulate a lot of them and if they could threaten their health or not. Um, so in terms of multiple threats, uh, they're probably a little better than Southern residents, uh, but we still have a lot of work to do. And some of our uh, Norwegian colleagues, for example, are working on uh, multiple stressors on Norwegian killer whales, trying to understand uh, how they were suffering from um, whale watching, uh also the all those like uh swim with the killer whales excursions uh yeah. which i know you had emma talk about uh in a previous episode which was great um so they're trying to figure out how the norwegian killer whales are doing and so our work also um will contribute to that and try to understand how what they eat if they have uh different feeding preferences if it impacts their contaminant exposures if it impacts their health, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I hopefully will have a response soon <laughs> to how uh, North Atlantic killer whales are doing, but this is kind of what we're trying to figure out right now. That's amazing. Yeah, I always like to ask why, you know, whatever type of research we're focusing on in the episode is important. And I feel like you kind of answered that question already because <laughs> we don't know how they're doing and that's important to know. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Science is, is really important and, you know, we need everybody to have a basic understanding of, you know, how it works in order for people to advocate for it and for things that, you know, go along with it. So speaking of, you know, scientific education and advocacy, you and your partner, Naomi Matthews, started Whale Scientists, which we've talked about a little bit on this podcast, but can you tell us about the organization for people who maybe haven't listened to that episode yet? Yes, absolutely. So whale scientists is a idea we had together. We both worked in Italy together. Um, and we were like, this is so cool. Like we're working on whales and we can't tell people like we don't have a platform yet. What is that about? And we also found out like we both were so interested in marine mammal research. We both wanted to be researchers and we had no idea how to do that. And we were like, there's no place that tells like aspiring marine mammalogists, hey, this is how you can do it. And we're like, the, this information is clearly missing. We should do something about it in the future, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so then like fast forward uh, five years, we're like in the middle of the pandemic and we're both uh, in need of a project. And I'm like, hey, let's just do it. Like now we're both PhD students and we have the knowledge and obviously like it's always really hard to get started because imposter syndrome like you're just like I'm not good enough to be talking about this and you probably uh, can relate because like you also do science communication it's always hard uh, to get started because you always fear of what people are gonna uh, think of you as a expert but non-expert like because yeah. you're never truly the expert right mm -hmm. um, but we just decided to do it and we also decided that this was going to be a platform where early career researchers can talk about marine, uh, marine mammal science. And so every author on whale scientists is an early career researcher and it is managed by early career researchers. And that to me was the most important because I feel like you never give a voice to early career researchers enough. Uh, and we really wanted to put the focus on them because they're the they're the ones doing the research currently uh most of it at least 
and they're as knowledgeable as, as anybody else, but no one ever gives them a voice. So that's kind of what we wanted to do. So overall, Whale Scientist is a place where you can learn a thing or two about marine mammals, uh, where you can learn about how to become a marine mammalogist, and where we also share the stories of marine mammalogists that we encountered through either social media or in our personal research lives. And um, we kind of want to show how diverse the world of marine mammalogy is. And so we had uh, so many different people tell us how they became whale researchers uh, in the world. And that was, that's always so inspiring for me to edit when I, when I added those pieces. Cause it's like, wow, these people have like been leading crazy lives and they ended up being like marine, marine mammalogists. And that's amazing. And so, yeah, that's kind of what we do. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I think that that's so important to have like young voices out there or newer voices. Cause like we hear the same people you know, kind of all the time, like we know the big names in the field, we've read their research, like that, you know, they always have like stuff coming out, but also, you know, it's important to challenge maybe ideas or methods of studying things and get fresh perspectives. And I think a lot of people, I think most people suffer from imposter syndrome, you know, no matter what career you're in. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, I definitely had this, like when I was starting the podcast, I only expected this podcast series to last like 12 episodes. That was like the original goal. And then like, I just kept talking to people and, um, but yeah, definitely. It's like, and I tell people too, like, I'm not an expert in like, I had somebody on one of my boats yesterday. He's like, you're an orca expert. Right. And I was like, um, probably like an orca enthusiast, someone who <laughs> I do study them, but not in a research context, you know, um, even if you research on them, like even I am technically a killer whale researcher, hmm. but it's so hard to like go out there and be like, yes, I'm a killer whale expert. Cause it's like, but I'm, am I though? Like I am doing research on them, but there is so much I do not know. And every day I find out something new and I realize how much I do not know. And this is kind of scary when you think about it. Cause you're like, but I am supposed to be the expert and then I don't know everything. So it's like, that's, I think that's how imposter syndrome starts. And then you just have to fight to like, not let it overpower you. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And also I kind of, to challenge that a little bit, feel like that is in a way, a healthy attitude as a scientist to be able to be like, Hey, I don't know everything. And like, yeah. You probably know a lot more, you for sure know a lot more than the average person. And like, you definitely are doing the research, but it's like, that's just the thing about whales and like a lot of areas of science is like, we just don't know. And I think that getting a little bit overconfident sometimes and being like, I am the expert, I know everything you get like closed off to things. So I think almost in a way it can be healthier to be like, I don't know, you know, but you got to find a line between letting that turn into imposter syndrome and like a healthy relationship with just like okay what do we know what do we not know it is a very uh delicate balance i find mm -hmm. and um yes you always have and that was kind of why we never started whale scientists before that because mm -hmm. uh, we were like no one is ever going to take us seriously because back then we were um undergrads and then we were graduate students but we still did not feel knowledgeable enough and so today we still don't feel like we still suffer from imposter syndrome, Naomi and I, 
Um, and I think all of our authors too, um, who are grad students or uh, recently graduated, but we just like kind of all like stand together and we're like, this is gonna be okay, we can do it. <laughs> and then sometimes, you know, sometimes you uh, try your best to get the information out there and it's not, sometimes it's like, you don't know and there was new research that came out to disprove what you just said, but you don't know everything because you're not like the absolute expert. And so like, you look like a fool, but it's okay to remember that like everybody can make mistakes and you keep on learning and keep on sharing what you learned. Absolutely. I think that's what it's all about too. And I think one of the difficult things with science is like, we want everything to be so exact and so precise and like, you know, one of the goals that I had with this podcast was kind of bringing in the human element of science, because it seems like it's just like such this, like, I don't know, concrete box that needs to be perfect. And like scientists make mistakes. It happens. Like people have to go back on what they've said. Like when I had, um, oh, I'm blinking on his name, but the sea star guy, let me look it up real quick. So I can <laughs> like the sea star guy. Um, Jason Hoden, when I had Jason Hoden on, um, he had talked about the sea star wasting disease and how a group of scientists had come out and said that they, they knew what was causing it. And then they later had to go back and be like, actually, we didn't know. Like, we don't, you know, it's just, it happens. Like, I think, you know, and I think too, because of that, sometimes people, because I encounter people in the whale watching industry that have like a distrust for like science and a dislike for no one, things like that, which I find so frustrating because, you know, scientists make mistakes. Nothing is ever going to be perfect, but it is the, it is the best possible like thing to base our decision-making off of rather than just like ideas that we think, you know, we think that this is work. Everybody's kind of trying their best. Yeah. Uh, and I think by working all together, uh, you can actually get the most out of it because whale uh whale watchers spend most of their time on the water and so they have like the direct access to marine mammals and scientists in the lab are trying to do the best to like get indirect information and so by coming all together you can like get the clearest uh idea of what's actually going on so yeah absolutely yeah and that kind of goes back to when you were talking about working with the indigenous people. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I feel like I noticed themes on the podcast. Like I'll have like a couple episodes in a row that have like kind of like a similar theme. And I feel like working together has been like a common theme. Um, mm -hmm. recently. And like everybody, there's a place for everybody in the field of marine mammalogy, in my opinion. Like obviously it is a competitive field, but the world needs more like, you know, naturalists and scientists and like anybody who cares about the ocean. Like we don't need, you know, tons of more accountants or whatever. Like if that's your passion, you should go for it. And I think it's really interesting what you just said. Cause I, when I started my PhD, um, I was obviously, a little um, scared because I was in Canada. I was just starting my PhD, so I knew nothing. <laughs> uh, and I was like, I'm gonna have to do some of my research on Norwegian killer whales. Mm -hmm. And there are the, this Norwegian team that works on killer whales and they are probably going to hate me because I am doing research on their killer whales and they're gonna think that like, I'm trying to like compete with them. And I was so scared because I was, I was like, I don't want anybody to hate me because I literally like, 
yes, I'm choosing what I'm doing, but it's also like part of the project I signed up to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I met with them. And at first I was like, they're going to hate me. They're going to hate me so much. Mm-hmm. And they actually, they were like, no, that's great. Welcome. Let's find a way to work together, not step on anybody's feet because we're all doing research, but let's not like publish the same thing, but let's work together. And so that created insane collaborations. And I'm now like super proud that I'm working with them and we are all like publishing papers together and it's been overall like so welcoming and I had been warned by other people that like killer whale researchers were kind of um, intense and I thought that they were actually super welcoming and that was great to me and that was like yeah there is there is a lot of hope and there is enough uh, research to be done for everyone to like get a part of get a part of it and collaborate and in the end, that's better for the whales and it's, uh, it's better for conservation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, you know, the more that people come together, together, the better off we are. And I, I've definitely heard that too, about killer whale researchers being like a little bit intense. And I think it depends on the individuals and where you go, but also too, I think, you know, as you touched on earlier with these newer scientists coming in, I think that this generation has more of like a, you know, we're, we're more willing to talk about like it being hard and just like talk about things in general and like have conversations about coming together and, you know, imposter syndrome and things like that, that make it a bit more welcoming. So, you know, I think it's time when you fail, like I like to share, uh, and that's like on my personal page, not whale scientists, but I like to share when things don't go well as well. So like if I had, um, So I'm extracting a lot of contaminants at the moment uh, and one of my vials break and Mm I end up, first of all, I end up with like a bunch of solvents on my hands with gloves, but gloves protect you just enough for you to like take them out. Um, And I have lost this super valuable sample and I'm like really sad. And I share it because I think that, yes, somebody else is going to have a bad day and they're going to see that researchers are not perfect. And sometimes we make mistakes and sometimes um, things don't go our way. And so, for example, for this paper that I just published, it was like six months of crying behind my computer because nothing was working and my model was not working and I could not find out why. And when I eventually did uh, and things started to work, then like it turned into a big victory. But I always kind of want to tell people and that's kind of what I try to do in when I give presentations to conferences I tell them so we did this and it took us this much time and we did this many calculations because I want people to realize that yes it is hard and but we're taking this with like in a good way and like we're we're taking a good approach and in the end like we're sharing everything Mm -hmm. that we did uh, even though it was hard and I don't want people to think like that scientists are like all perfect and just like right. unapproachable because I want to yes. be want people to relate yeah absolutely it's so important and like we love to see it because the more people that know about science and you know different processes and methodologies like the better off the world is in my personal opinion um you're right (laughs) yeah I feel like we talked about a lot and of course the question that I always ask people is what can we learn from the whales which I feel like you kind of touched on but do you have anything else to add 
Um, well, I think in the future, what I want to learn, uh, and especially using this approach that we developed, is how the whales impact uh, Arctic uh, ecosystems. And so we know that killer whales are moving into the Arctic. And I want to know from them how they are impacting uh, the Arctic ecosystems and how potentially we can uh, expect Arctic ecosystems to shift in the future. And I think it's crazy when you think about it, because you know like there's this loss of sea ice and killer whales that have this big dorsal fin usually do not do well in sea ice. Mm-hmm. And then you remove the sea ice and the killer whales arrive in the Arctic and there's all this abundance of new prey. And what are they gonna start to feed on? What is it going to change? And I think it's insane the amount of information that we can get from um, whales just to look at one ecosystem. And yeah, that's my response. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm excited to see more of your research and what you learn over the coming years, what we all learn over the coming years about whales. Um, Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Um. Save the whales, <laughs> save the southern residents, because I know I know now you focus on a lot more than southern residents, but I know that's why uh, the podcast started. And uh, I think even though now we talk about more than southern residents, don't forget about the southern residents and don't forget about whales in general. And don't forget that everything that you do ends up in the ocean. So Absolutely. be careful. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being here. I'll be sure to link all of your social media with whale scientists, this paper, the conference below. So everybody go check that out if you're interested in any and all of those things. But thank you again for being on here. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to uh, listening to all your next episodes. Thank you. All righty, we're going <laughs> to sign off. Bye. Bye.